with a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. It's the Friday edition, which means we have the panel coming up at the bottom of the hour. But to start the program, as usual, it is this week's Ram and Stag. Good morning. I'm your host, Nathan Gita. We've got John Robson on the program today. Hello, Mr. Robson. How are you doing? I'm just fine, thanks. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm wondering what is going on with uh, basically our historical understanding of this country period and have we completely lost our minds when it comes to Canada Day? I'd like your thoughts on all that stuff. I think the biggest problem is that we've lost our sense of perspective mm. on our history and on generally on the, the whole problem of politics and government. If people expect Canada to be perfect, they're going to be sorely disappointed because it's full of human beings, including them, I might add. But once you understand that, that human beings are very flawed and that human history is a frightening tale of horror, I mean, Hegel called it a butcher's block, and then you look for places in the world where things were relatively better and seem to show some prospect of further improvement, then you would focus on Canada and the rest of the Anglosphere primarily and then the rest of the West as far and away the best place to live and the most promising one. Uh, and if you were to celebrate our history in a historical sense, and for me that means going back to Magna Carta, obviously, then you see a foundational document that appears to guarantee liberty. And to a fairly wide range of people, including Magna Carta, has a number of sections dealing with women's rights. And you have to ask yourself, was the whole thing a fake? Were they just lying? Is it just been a pantomime show? Or was there a real and valuable circle of protections that was not always drawn widely enough? Is the problem that we didn't always live up to our ideals? Or is it that our ideals were themselves bogus, even vicious sham, that we are a genocidal, settler, colonialist state entirely lacking in legitimacy? If you take the latter view, of course, you don't want to celebrate Canada Day. And the sooner we get rid of Canada, the better. And then maybe we'll think of something we could put in its place that might work. But if you understand that it has been a flawed but noble venture that has achieved a great deal and could still achieve more, then on Canada Day, you don't forget the things that weren't done right, but you celebrate the fact that they are a betrayal of our ideals rather than a fulfillment of them. And in this instance, it's kind of interesting. So do you think that basically there's this separate movement that is clearly about woke ideology and an agenda elsewhere that's using kind of Canada Day as a front, canceling Canada Day as a front? And then on the other side, the question of sovereignty for those of us in the West who are quite upset at Ottawa, at least the Ottawa that we've known since basically Pearson and Trudeau refounded this country back in the 1960s. It seems to me that the, the foundational point here, in a, in a way it brings me back to the American Revolution, not because I'm advocating armed revolt, but from an intellectual point of view, if you look at the state seal of Massachusetts in 1976, it shows this guy, looks like the New England Patriots mascot. Uh, he's got a, a saber in one hand and he's got a scroll in the other. And if you read the scroll, it says Magna Charta. So what the Americans were doing in the 1760s through the 1780s was not overthrowing a form of government that had been tried and found wanting, but restoring a form of government that they thought was actually being overthrown by the king and his advisors in London. And so I think that when, when you look at uh, Western separatism in Canada, the problem, as you say, is not that people think that Canada, as traditionally understood, the Westminster system, liberty under law, limited government, a man's home being his castle, Magna Carta, um, 
and and all the things going back to Kibosh Romanosum and and uh, the idea of human rights that that finds its dawn in Greece and then comes through Rome and so on. It's not that this was wrong. It's that it had, as you say, been betrayed or abandoned or deliberately destroyed by the authorities in Ottawa. And if the result of pressure to set, secede in the West was that the Canadian Federation would be restored to its proper foundations, if we could have a charter of rights that doesn't have loopholes, not, and I'm thinking less of the notwithstanding clause here than of the infamous Section 1, it says that our rights can be trampled anytime a court appointed by the politicians trampling our rights says, yeah, this seems to suit the greater good. If that could be restored, Western separatism would cease to be a force, and I think rightly not. As had, had the British government lived up to its traditions in the 1750s and 1760s, there'd have been no American Revolution. And if you look at the uh, upper and, Canadian, and lower Canadian revolts in the 1830s, and, and the British looked at this and they said, here we go again. We are once again betraying our ideals. We're not allowing uh, free people self-government, and they're going to revolt, and we're going to lose them. And so they sent Lord Durham and said, Jack, would you mind going and telling us what's going on? But they knew what he was going to say. He was going to say, give them representative government or else they'll be out the door. And he went and said, give them representative government or they'll be out the door, and the British did. And so there was no need for any much trouble. And this, to me, is the fundamental point. I mean, suppose Alberta separates or the West separates. The Buffalo is finally created. Maybe parts of B.C. join in. You still have the problem of what constitutes good government. On what basis shall we construct institutions? Will we have uh, a Bill of Rights that overrides the actions of legislatures? And again, I point to the American Constitution, their Bill of Rights. It says there are things Congress can't do, even if the president signs them. But the Americans were innovating there. They were looking back to the time, and it went on for centuries, when a law that violated Magna Carta in Britain was invalid. It didn't matter if it was passed by the Commons and the Lords. It didn't matter if the King agreed to it. It simply could not stand. And so I think Alberta was going to want to have that. They're going to want to have representative government. They're going to want to have legislative assemblies. I presume they'll want first past the post, or perhaps they'll try some other system. But they'll keep the fundamental structure of Westminster, which, again, the Americans, when they created their congressional system, were not trying to change, but to preserve the essence of. And so the ideal here isn't like, well, as long as the West is independent, it'll be great, even if we elect the Communist Party or they seize power. The idea is we need to get back to the things that made Western civilization a beacon to the world. And again, it's worth noting when, when they do polls on Canada Day and then, you know, white progressives who were born here are like, boo, down with Canada. And then uh, persons of color who have immigrated to Canada say, what are you, nuts? Do you have any idea what I left to get to this place? And it doesn't mean they're want to be called racial slurs or that they're going to just say, okay, everything's perfect. But they appreciate that it's better here. And this is, again, Canada is not something that sprang from the brow of Sir John A. Macdonald, conceived completely as a new thing. It was very definitely seen as a continuation of the product project of Anglosphere liberty. If you look at the confederation debates, you have people who are favoring confederation saying, join confederation, preserve your British liberty. And you have people who are saying, reject confederation, preserve your British liberty. There's no question that they understand that for all its imperfections, uh, this was the best way that had ever been found. And, and since race is a big issue these days, let's remember that the British Empire did not merely abolish the slave trade and then slavery within its boundaries. They sent the Royal Navy to wipe it out in foreign countries just because it was wrong. 
And it is true that racial slavery and bigotry are a horrendous stain on the historical record of the West. But it's also worth noting that nowhere else ever had an abolitionist movement. Everybody had slavery. The racial slavery was a Renaissance horror particular to uh, Western civilization. And there's no, you can't fast talk your way out of that. The facts speak for themselves. But the Roman Empire had no abolitionist movement. And Rome was the most enlightened civilization in the world had seen to that point. Um, you know, Asia had no abolitionist movement. Um, the, the caste system in India, which is you know, much of it is slavery by another name, um, that was not going to be abolished by internal dynamics. Africa had widespread slavery and no abolitionist movement. Only the West looked at its institutions and said, what in the name of God are we doing to our fellow human beings? And if you forget that, th- th- you're not going to build anything new out of the intellectual as well as political rubble. So, so I think, yes, it's very appropriate to celebrate Canada Day, or for my money, Dominion Day, and say we must get back to this. And if we can get back to it in a united Canada, that will be fine. But if we're convinced we can't, we must get back to it in a new and independent country. It's not enough to secede. We must secede with the purpose of restoring liberty under law and building statues of Alfred the Great and Edward Cook and uh, King Canute, one of my badly misunderstood historical favorites, and celebrating the only system that ever succeeded in treating human dignity as a serious thing in the political and legal system. Your reference of Dominion Day, of course, uh, speaks to my heart. I have an ensign. I have it hung on my wall. I, I miss the days of the ensign. Uh, I, I think that so much of what went sideways in Canada, honestly, I don't think it's recovered really from the Pearson Trudeau consensus. Maybe you could help our listeners and viewers understand a little bit more of what was, it seemed like a subtle thing at the time, maybe to some people, but it was actually an astronomical change. And we're still living in the brainchild of of what Pearson and Trudeau did to Canada, certainly. Uh, 1965, 1967, 1968? I think, unfortunately, that you're absolutely right there. I mean, it always stuck in my craw that they got rid of a flag that had the British heritage celebrated in it and replaced it with one in their own party colors. That was the kind of thing that one did not expect in a self-governing Western democracy. That had this kind of cheesy partisanship when associated with a third world sliding into a sordid dictatorship. I mean, obviously we weren't doing that, but but it was a bad sign. And I, I recently wrote this about uh, Trudeau, that the problem with Pierre Trudeau is that he didn't think Canada was a great place. He thought it would be a great place if only it was completely reconstructed in his image. And that's the project we've been on ever since. You know, we're going to be bilingual. We're going to be bicultural. We're going to be sort of big government libertine. All the things we weren't that made Canada an embarrassment. Uh, and, and we saw at one point, you know, his, his son admitting that, yes, he thought Quebecers were better. And that was just seemed to him quite obvious. Um, and and yet, of course, I mean, or, or Jean Chrétien. Remember Chrétien used to go around saying, I wish I'd been there to wake up Montcalm. That he, he would quite openly say, I would have actively contributed to the military victory of French absolutism over the parliamentary democracy that finally gave Quebecers rights. And, and this, to me, a very forgotten figure in the Canada's struggle for liberty is Pierre Bédard, who was a member of the uh, legislature in Lower Canada leading up to the uh, rebellion. And he was forever saying, we don't have proper British self-government because the executive gets subsidies from London. It isn't dependent upon the legislature for supply. And until you have that, you cannot control your government. And so there were people in Quebec who understood perfectly well what was going on here. But... Uh, 
Pierre Trudeau, I think, was, you know, he was clever, but a silly man. He really was quite silly. And whatever, you know, airport paperback by John Kenneth Galbraith he just read. Uh, Remember, he once went to the Soviet Union and said, yeah, we live under the military domination of the United States. And, oh, you've got a federal system like ours. Uh, There was a shallowness there, but there was was a real inability to understand and a contempt for the British system. He didn't really, I mean, he thought he was a libertarian, but he gave us a charter of rights filled with loopholes. This was a preposterous thing for him to have done. And the result of Trudeau was that government got far bigger, far more aggressive, and far more interested in remaking us. The understanding, I mean, when a man's home is his castle and so forth, the idea is that the citizens shall determine the shape of the government. But Trudeau Sr. wanted the government to determine the shape of the citizens. And that is a very fundamental intellectual revolution. And he also didn't have much time for parliament. He didn't. The idea that this Canadian system, the executive branch, the ministry, is not the government. It is a branch of the government, and it must answer to the branch we elect. And it is through the business of supply, that is the voting or withholding of money, that our representatives enforce their control. This was not a doctrine that he understood or loved. And again, it's it's remarkable to understand that this this idea of parliament, at the time of Magna Carta, there is no parliament. Magna Carta is not a legislative act. It is an act of the people. And then the parliament appears within about 60 years, and then the commons is sitting separately by 1346, so in just over a century. And by 1400, the, uh, or f- between 1400 and 1415, they established that um, the king cannot um, edit bills, that the commons has primacy on money bills, and that the king must answer their grievances before getting any money. So all of this is in place by around 1400, but it is not a French thing. The French parlement did not meet between 1614, I believe it was, and 1789. And even when it did meet, the French Parliament could not control the king. They quite explicitly said, we shouldn't be able to do that. That would be bad. And so uh, Pierre Trudeau came out of a very different system. And um, he certainly had a kind of sympathy for communism, which is just incompatible with understanding how liberty under law works. And so we went from having a very small government, as late as 1958, as a share of GDP, Canadian governments were smaller than the American governments. And Louis Saint Laurent was very much in the classical Wilfrid Laurier liberal tradition. In Quebec, it doesn't mean he didn't believe in limited government. He understood its merits. And remember, Laurier said Canada is free and freedom is its nationality. You would have gotten a horse laugh from Pierre Trudeau if you'd made that suggestion. And I think that, and, and then we got all these things getting renamed, you know, and with these kind of almost Soviet names like Petro Canada. And he decided he would just remake the free market and zap your frozen. And then he and brings in wage and price controls. All these kind of things represented a hugely activist state. And then you got, I mean, this is a very technical thing, but it used to be that uh, committees of the commons had to uh, actually look at the departmental budgets by a certain time or they couldn't be in, in the annual budget. And under uh, Pearson temporarily and then Trudeau uh, permanently, the rule was made that if they weren't examined, they were deemed to have been examined. So he just brushed Parliament aside. It was full of yappy people. And the idea that his own caucus might question him, you know, what, what was anathema to him. But you look back into the 19th century and, and Sir John A. Macdonald was forever worrying about the shaky fellows and loose fish, as he called them. And in, in the ninth heyday of Parliament in, the, in Britain in the 19th century, ministries would quite routinely fall in the House because they couldn't whip their caucuses. 
And sometimes you would have a prime minister fall and the other party take power without even having an election. Because legislators were understood not to be members of the red team, the blue team, or then the orange team, but representatives of the people who sent them there. And that's the system that I think Trudeau destroyed without really understanding it. He knew it annoyed him, but he didn't. He, if you'd asked him to try and recite some of the history on Magna Carta, tell us who Simone de Montfort was or what the model parliament was about or, you know, identify and explain the significance of Edward Cook or even about the rebellion against uh, Charles I, James I, and then, of course, uh, Charles II, not really because he was too wise to push it to a breaking point, and then the Glorious Revolution against James II. I don't think that Pierre Trudeau could have told you any of that stuff, or Sir John A. Macdonald could have recited it in his sleep. That's part one of this week's Ram and Stag. We'll have part two in a moment here on After Nine. Give your morning a boost with some sounds from above with Songs in the Chapel Sunday mornings at 9 on 93.1 CFISFM. Join me, Corey Walker, as I fill the airwaves with the sounds of heavenly gospel music. I feature a mixture of traditional country, bluegrass, southern, and black gospel, and even a little bit of worship and contemporary Christian music. Inspiring messages in the Salvation Army's Heartbeat series is featured in every show. Has songs in chapel Sunday morning at 9, only here on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Team BC and Canadian Sport Institute Pacific have partnered to create the Team BC Games Prep Program. For the 2022 Canada Summer Games, the revamp program gives access to potential Team BC athletes and now gives coaches access to CSI Pacific's suite of athlete coach services. This exciting initiative officially launches on Monday. More information on the suite of athlete and coach services being provided to Team BC's athletes and coaches are available through Canadian Sport Institute Pacific's website, csipacific.ca. The Knowledge Garden at the Prince George Public Library is now open for the season. The garden is located next to the Bob Harkins branch of the library downtown and features benches and a picnic site. It also has a small amphitheater where library staff conduct many outdoor programs, and it's a great place to enjoy your lunch in the beautiful surroundings. That's the Knowledge Garden at the Prince George Public Library, now open next to the Bob Harkins branch downtown. Forecast from Environment Canada. Sunny today, wind from the southwest at 20 this afternoon, a high of 20 with a very high UV index. Partly cloudy tonight and a low of 13. For Saturday, more sun, a high of 26 with a very high UV index. It's after 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. As promised, here is the second part of this week's Ram and Stag. Perhaps something we can touch on while we have a little bit of time left is this question of residential schools and what has happened here. So obviously there's been some discoveries of unmarked grave sites. I believe that another church was burned. This is getting a bit out of hand, to put it politely. And it seems like the interpretation of what happened inside of residential school halls has taken a turn for the absurd, as if somehow every single residential school was built to be Auschwitz. How did we get to this historical forgetfulness and amnesia? The starting point is that the collision between Western European and Aboriginal cultures that took place starting in the Renaissance was a historical disaster of enormous proportions that nobody could have controlled or prevented. And the principal agent of destruction, of course, was the diseases that Europeans carried, having been living in urban civilizations for uh, thousands of years and to which the inhabitants of the Americas had no immunity. In the aftermath of this, some people, and Sir John A. Macdonald is comparatively enlightened on this one, he said to himself, if we don't do something to help these people adjust to the modern world that has descended upon them like a ton of bricks, they really will die out. 
We've got to teach them the fundamental skills that you need to function in the 19th century. For instance, you must teach them to read and write. This was a part of the disruption, but it wasn't the cause of the disruption. It was a well-intentioned, though often badly executed, consequence. Now, nothing, in my view, justifies an unmarked grave. No matter what kind of life a person has had, no matter under what circumstances they died, there should be a headstone recording that they were a child of God and that this is where their mortal remains are located. But we don't even know who's buried in those graves. There's some suggestion that these may have been community graveyards as well as the place where students who died in the residential schools were buried. And I remember one news story mentioned where the first discovery in Kamloops is over 200 and then the next one's over 700. But the story said they think something like 3,000 children died in the residential school system. And if that's true, then we found a quarter of them in two sites or else those are not just places where children who died in residential schools were buried. And one of the things that we ought to do is figure out who's in those graves before a rush to judgment. And also to understand that if you set up a residential school and a sexual predator uses it to their advantage, then they, of course, have done something very evil and the administrators who let it happen have done something very evil. But it doesn't mean that the people who created the school system meant for that to happen or in some way aided and abetted it. There is a very powerful issue of personal responsibility here. It's very difficult to say this these days, but there are people who went to the residential schools who were grateful that they did. And if you ask yourself, okay, where would Aboriginals in Canada be today if there hadn't been residential schools? Suppose this had not been done. Do you really think the situation would be enormously better? And if you start saying, oh, yes, but this and that and that, the other thing also should have changed and Columbus's ship should have sunk, you know, or I would say, well, if the medieval warm period hadn't ended, if the Viking settlements had actually survived, there might have been a much more gradual and less catastrophic meeting of the two cultures, including on the epidemiological front. But you can't go back and change history in these ways. It's preposterous to try. You have to say to yourself, as you as you raise it, was this like the Nazis? Was this really an attempt to exterminate a people? Or was this a well-meaning, underfunded, often botched, and sometimes patronizing and even bigoted attempt to bring the blessings of Western civilization to people who, if they didn't get some kind of help, were actually in very serious danger of perishing entirely from the face of the earth? And if you see it that way, it's like the whole question of Canada. Is it a flawed but well-meaning experiment with a lot to recommend it? including the fact that now we are looking back at the history of our treatment of Aboriginal peoples and saying, what a nightmare that was. How do we fix it? As opposed to, you know, the Chinese thing of saying, dare to criticize the great Jinping and you will vanish horribly. If we can't see that we're not perfect, but we are trying to acknowledge and fix what we can of the past, improve the present, and not pretend to have virtues we didn't have, or get hysterical about the failings of people in the past... Because one of the things that I really dislike about this uh, general atmosphere is people who act as though if only I'd been around in the 19th century, nothing bad would have happened. And I just set fire to a church, right? Well, if you're a church burner, you're probably not the one to lead the reconciliation effort. And none of this is to minimize the tragedy. Of course, it's important to find all the graves and see who's buried in them and find out what happened. But it is to recognize the world of difference between a well-meaning attempt to bring people into the modern world who are going to be in it or get crushed by it for reasons you couldn't control, and an attempt to exterminate a people because you were a hate-filled racist Heinrich Himmler, Canadian version.
And indeed, this is where things get off to an absolutely insane start with how we've reinterpreted these instances. The only thing that is more absurd, in a sense, than what's happened here with and politicians being silent on the church burnings and still this complete lack of context about what happened in the residential schools is the fact that parliament seems to be absent in general. It feels like the people in charge are not driving the bus. Well, certainly the parliamentarians are not. And again, to to recall the history, after Magna Carta, there were a number of efforts, starting with Bad King John, who as soon as he'd sealed the thing, went around and tried to destroy it. There were a number of efforts culminating with the Stuarts and just trying to ride roughshod over Parliament. And it didn't work. And then under the Hanovers, and this is what triggered the American Revolution, it it occurred to the executive that instead of uh, that, they could seduce Parliament by perks, by privilege, by flattery, by outright bribery if they needed it. They could keep the form of parliament, but turn it into a tame appendage of the executive. And this came fairly close to succeeding. Then after the American Revolution, there was a real revulsion in Britain against this process. But then it started again. But if you look at what proportion of a typical governing caucus now are actually in cabinet, a great portion of the dominant faction in parliament is actually part of the executive branch. And its job is not to hold the executive branch accountable. It's to make sure that the executive branch has all the power. So when they slither up the greasy pole, they'll have it. Well, thank you so much. Of course, we have John Robson here, who is a columnist of the National Post. And where are you a professor? I'm an adjunct professor at Augustine College, which is a very small private Christian organization in Ottawa. Thank you so much for joining us. I hope to have you on again soon. On 93.1 CFIS-FM, that is this week's Ram and Stag. When we return, it's the Friday panel And your host this morning, Bill Phillips. COVID-19 has changed so much in our lives, including how we litter. According to Great Canadian Shoreline Cleanup's annual Dirty Dozen report, the proportion of single-use food packaging litter found on Canadian shorelines nearly doubled last year. With last year's cleanup curtailed due to the pandemic, the cleanup shortfall is substantial. Organize or participate in this year's physically distanced cleanup by registering today at shorelinecleanup.ca. The Great Canadian Shoreline Cleanup, brought to you by OceanWise and the World Wildlife Federation. The Spirit of the North Healthcare Foundation invites you to give a hug for healthcare. Celebrate those we can now see, remember those we have lost, and honor the healthcare workers who bravely navigated incredibly challenging times. Create your own hug jar with your individual token amount, then add a token to your hug jar for each hug given and received. Every donation helps and is eligible for a charitable receipt. Hug for healthcare. For more information, contact the Spirit of the North Healthcare Foundation office at 250-565-20. The Indigenous Sport, Physical Activity and Recreation Council is offering their Healthy Leader Training Sessions for the Northwest Northeast Region, September 27th and 28th. Being offered via Zoom, the sessions will be filled with learning, movement and laughter and are open to all community members who want to deliver an Indigenous Run, Walk or Honor Your Health Challenge program. Registration and full details are available through ispark.ca. The iSpark Healthy Leader Training Sessions for the Northwest Northeast, September 27th and 28th via Zoom. The Regional District of Fraser Fort George is completing a housing needs assessment to better understand housing challenges across the regional district. The first step in the process is a public survey available online at rdffg.bc.ca slash housing. Hard copies of the survey are available by calling the Regional District Office at 250-960-4400. The survey is available through July 30th. That's the Regional District conducting a housing survey online through July 30th. 
featuring the people who make things happen and Prince George. You're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Take out the papers and the trash. <laughs> oh, yakety yak. There we go. We had a, <laughs> we had a, a, a different intro here to After 9. I'm your host, Bill Phillips. And we have our regular panelists this week uh, on After 9, Art Betke, Eric Allen, Peter Ewart, and Herb Martin. And I think we've all been uh, trying to beat the heat this past week. Uh, I think in Prince George we said at least three or or four uh, record high temperature days. And of course uh, down in, in, in Lytton, which is just recently burnt to the ground, they set a Canadian record all-time high down there of 49.7 or some. Uh, crazy temperature like this. So uh, let's go to art first. Is are these record high temperatures? Are certainly not normal. Is is this uh, part of climate change? Uh, um, and are we going to see more of this in the future? Um, yes, it is part of climate change, and it's also a one-off anomaly. Um, climate has been changing for 3.8 billion years for as long as the planet has had an atmosphere and it's going to continue uh, until the atmosphere is gone that's one thing climate does is change so any weather event is part and parcel of climate change but let's be honest when they say climate change what they really mean is global warming they just stopped calling it that because the planet didn't warm for 20 years a few years ago contrary to the predictions I mean Let's let's remember last year, shall we? It rained all summer and fall. I didn't have to water my lawn or garden once. And even this year, until this heat uh, wave hit, I was, hadn't uh, had to water because it was raining all the time. Uh, <clears throat> this is uh, an unusual event. Uh, I rather doubt we're going to see it repeated from year to year. Uh, these heat domes happen, according to the scientists, when strong high-pressure atmospheric conditions combine with uh, influences from La Nina of the previous winter uh, that cause the vast areas of sweltering heat that get trapped under the high-pressure dome. I don't know much about it. That's what the scientists say. Um, it, they, uh, it, it's, it's a freak. It's a one-in-a-thousand-year uh, event. Um, any heat event uh, nowadays, though, is caused uh, is called uh, global warming or climate change. But cold events, well, that's just kind of weather because it doesn't fit the narrative. We got to stop cherry picking. Our globe is much bigger than this heat dome in the contiguous U.S. It's um, the whole United States itself. It's almost one degree below average temperature. Uh, New Mexico is setting cool records. Uh, Australia setting cold records and rare snowfalls. Antarctic Station uh, recently set an all-time cold record of minus 81 Celsius. The globe is a whole lot bigger than this one little uh, uh, heat wave, or big heat wave, rather. And uh, let's not confuse weather events with climate events. Okay, uh, Eric, uh, let's let's go to you. Is this uh, are we confusing uh, uh, one-off event, uh, or or is this uh, actually part and parcel of of, uh, of a, a warming globe? Which uh, uh, Art has said that there's lots of places that are getting colder, but I, but I think the overall globe temperature they're concerned that it is increasing. 
so is this is this part of that, or should we be worried that more of this is going to come? Well, I think more of it's going to come over time. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, I mean, a uh, hundred years ago, there was a record uh, high, and it was just this weekend uh, that we actually broke that record. So in between that hundred years, there was lots of warm weather, but not to that extreme. So this could be an anomaly, but, uh, but you know, we have everything in place, uh, what we do and how we do it. I mean, half the world is pavement now and it you know it absorbs the heat and radiates it back and you get that sunshine out there it don't take long to heat up a whole town like prince george or something and the big cities it's a hundred thousand times worse with all the heat that goes in there so yeah things change i mean uh you take uh clear-cut logging and i mean if people want to take the time to see how much uh, moisture is absorbed into a tree and how much is released into an atmosphere and how much we're losing because of our logging practices uh, all across North America. You can see that we're in for some big changes in the future. Mm-hmm. Yep. P- Peter, uh, your thoughts on this? Uh, is this just a, a one-off event that uh, that uh, happened by, by chance or is this... Uh, uh, is this the, the canary in the coal mine of uh, what's to come? Yeah, I don't believe it's a one-off anomaly by any means. Uh, you know, we just look, when we look at things, uh, we're right in the middle of this here. Like, look what's happened to our forest with the pine beetle. You know, we've had uh, millions of hectares uh, uh, killed by the pine beetle, and uh, the global warming is uh, is a, f- a big factor in that, allowing these uh, uh, pine beetles to uh, attack the trees. Right, so. We're right in the middle of it here, and we, of course, we we also have the you know the problem of the forest fires and the glaciers melting and uh, and, and and so on, right? So, I don't see it as a one-off anomaly, and I actually see that you know one of the problems is that human beings have become a geological force, right? In terms of uh, you know the pollutants, or as Eric is talking about, uh, you know the the clear cutting and and so on, right? So. We're a, what we're doing in the world is a factor here, and uh, so it's, uh, it's very important that we recognize that this is not a one-off anomaly, that we uh, prepare, like climate change can be very um, uh, confusing and disruptive, right, where things go up and down and whatever, but um, we're, in, we're in the middle of it, and yes, uh, climate change has gone on for a long period of time, but we have to look at the concrete conditions right now and make the proper preparations in terms of our communities, making sure that there's fire breaks around communities, uh, that there's uh, proper air conditioning in seniors' homes, and, and so on. It's a, it's a fact of life, I, I believe, uh, this uh, problem. Uh, Herb, uh, uh, Peter talked about, uh, you know, humans are have become a, a, uh, a force of uh, changing the, the global sphere of things on this planet do you do you think that's uh, 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 true or, or do you think that uh, the planet will do what the planet will do well I mean yeah there's uh, uh, a current term now the anthropogenic uh, era this is where humans have, have uh, basically started changing uh, the world's climate and um, uh, yeah, we we are a force, and we know we know what we have to do to change. Uh, it's now it's um, a matter of getting the political will and um, and facing down some of these problems that we have created. 
Um, but if we look at the uh, local city council, for example, uh, it doesn't give much hope. Uh, if we can't even deal with homeless people, how are we going to deal with climate change? Um, you know, the, uh, there's the lightning detecting system in uh, North America is pretty accurate. And from 15 hours from um, uh, June 30th to July 1st, uh, the morning of July 1st, they recorded over 700,000 lightning strikes uh, over B.C. and northwest Alberta. 112 of those actually hit the ground. 112,000, uh, rather, uh, hit the ground. And, um, you know, we, we have not yet seen the full extent of the fires that will arise from this event. So they, the, the meteorologists were quite astounded, and um, they put it down to these uh, pyrocumulonimbus uh, clouds that generate their own, their own uh, weather and lightning systems. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we're, we're, we're reaching um, uh, breaking points, and, uh, or tipping points, rather, and uh, we are on uncharted territory, and um, it's, not, it's not the time to sit back and, um, and relax. Mm-hmm. Uh, Art, uh, do you think we are at a, a tipping point? And, and regardless of what has caused climate change, uh, uh, things are changing, and should we as humans uh, be trying to do whatever we can to mitigate whatever damage there might be? Well, there's absolutely nothing we can do about it, uh, especially Canada. We could eliminate uh, our emissions about 100% and it wouldn't have the slightest effect. Uh, I'm sure that governments and activists will use this event to uh, impose costly and utterly futile measures uh, to try and save the planet, but it's just a waste of money and effort. Let's, you know, you, you can check into the, the science. The planet has been warming for the past 150 years, but it's warming up from the coldest point in the past 8,000 years. Six, 7,000 years ago, it was like four or five degrees warmer than now, and the earth was green and lush. Um, a thousand years ago, it was warmer than now, too. If we were near a tipping point, we would have tipped past those points long ago. Uh, let's just look at the science and forget the politics. It's not a problem. Um, Eric, uh, do you think uh, Art's right there that uh, that uh, there isn't much we can do to, to, to stave off the changing climate in the world? Well, I mean, there's lots of things we can do. Uh, the first thing we can do is take all the uh, multi-billions of dollars that uh, we put into uh, yachts and buying islands and, uh, you know, spending most of our time thinking that the greatest thing on Earth is the accumulation of uh, money. We could spend some of that money uh, in more uh, reasonable ways. We could plant more stuff, grow more stuff, make better cities create better jobs for people uh, and uh, you know I mean we've got a huge country here with uh, hardly any people in it we could build a, a great country instead we're shipping everything out of the country and we're giving uh, minimum wage jobs to people and expect them to be happy with us that's a bunch of BS we can do a lot of things it's just that we don't do it we sit on our butts and wax philosophically 
And one thing we have to do is uh, go to a commercial break. We'll be right the Prince George Community Foundation has moved. Now located at 1584 7th Avenue, the new facility offers the foundation the opportunity to expand and better serve loyal donors, grant applicants, and valued community partners. Their phone number and email addresses have remained the same, as have the website and social media accounts. But their office is now located at 1584 7th Avenue. The Prince George Community Foundation, celebrating 25 years, all for our community. Individuals who experienced sexual misconduct as a member of the Canadian Armed Forces or as an employee of the Department of National Defense and or staff of the non-public funds Canadian Forces may qualify for financial compensation and participate in a restorative engagement program. Claims for financial compensation and the restorative engagement program must be filed by November 24, 2021. File a claim. Participate in restorative engagement. Be heard. File a claim at caf-dndsexualmisconductclassaction.ca. Prince George City Council meetings are now open again to members of the public. Meetings, however, are not yet back to normal as steps remain in place to ensure physical distancing to protect the health and safety of council, staff, and the public in adherence with the city's COVID-19 safety plan and provincial health orders. The city anticipates a phased resumption of pre-pandemic processes and protocols related to public meetings to take place in step with the BC Restart Plan. Full details are available through the Mayor and Council link under City Hall at PrinceGeorge.ca. Forecast from Environment Canada. Sunny today, wind from the southwest at 20 this afternoon, a high of 26 with a very high UV index. Partly cloudy tonight and a low of 13. For Saturday, more sun, a high of 26 with a very high UV index. Thank you for tuning in and staying tuned to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. And we're back. I'm your host, Bill Phillips, with the After 9, and we have our usual panel on today. Um, we're switching topics a little bit. Uh, coming out of uh, City Hall earlier this week, City Council has uh, kicked down the road its uh, Safe Streets bylaw to August 30th. Uh, that, of course, is the bylaw that uh, uh, will deal with, uh, Council hopes to will deal with some of the homeless problems downtown and empower city staff to ticket people for vagrancy and mischief and all that kind of stuff. Um, let's uh, let's go to Peter first. Uh, um, is is this uh, is this uh, council just kicking this uh, issue down the road and hopefully uh, uh, it'll go drift into the winter and uh, and a lot of the people on the streets now will find shelter elsewhere and and the issue will be gone. Well, yeah, it's kicking it down the road, but I think it's a whole, a total wrong direction, you know, to go and, you know, be uh, imposing fines on uh, on homeless people who uh, don't have the means at all to pay for these things. This is a societal problem that is not confined to Prince George. It's in, you go to Kamloops, you go to uh, Vancouver, you go to San Francisco. It's a, it's an ongoing problem. It's a, it's a complex problem. But I, one thing I do think that the city council could focus on is, is just focus on certain concrete measures. Like, for example, where is the, the place in the downtown where, where, where tents could be set up? Or as Eric has proposed before, uh, trailers, right, where, which could house the homeless, where, where there could be washrooms and water. And basically that's not going to solve the problem, but it's going to alleviate the problem. Yet uh, we still don't have a situation whereby... There is an agreed-upon place where uh, homeless people can uh, can congregate, can set up tents, or, or be in trailers. And 
Uh, I would much rather see the city council focus on measures like that, positive measures like that, that uh, are doable, uh, can be brought about, and um, can help. It won't eliminate, but at least help alleviate the problems until other kinds of housing is uh, put in place uh, down the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, Herb, uh, your thoughts on uh, City Council deferring this? Uh, is this just sort of a delay tactic until they they can uh, maybe see this bylaw just kind of drift off into nothing? Yeah, yeah they're, they're just uh, kicking the, the can down the road. And uh, there was, uh, Neil Godbu wrote an excellent uh, editorial. He said... Uh, uh, brings to mind what Ben Pfizer would have said, flip-flop, belly-flop, give the dog a bone. And, um, you know, it's these guys, yeah, they're, 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 they're not even serious politicians. Here's, there's something that they could actually do something about, and um, uh, they refuse to take any kind of stand whatsoever. I mean, it, it's, it's really pathetic. It's, uh, I, have, I have really no respect for them. Uh, Art, uh, your thoughts? Uh, we've we've a lot of the, or not a lot, but probably about thirty or forty of the homeless people are now set up at the fifth, uh, at the foot of Fifth uh, Avenue down there. Ironically, right behind the Citizen Office. Um, do you think that's uh, helping things, or whether this bylaw will help at all? Well, the bylaw would have helped. Uh, the purpose of the fines was not to actually fine them. Uh, they know that they. Uh, both can't pay the fines and would refuse to pay them anyway. Uh, it's just that uh, the bylaws require there is a penalty, so they have to include that in there. So uh, that's kind of irrelevant. Um, no, I, that council is just cowards. Uh, any little uh, criticism, you know, they're going to take a lot of heat for doing that, uh, being called all kinds of mean and miserable and racists and all kinds of stuff like that. So they're they're just cowards. They did they, they didn't want to take that kind of heat. So they uh, basically what they're doing is just totally abandoning it. They kick it down the road far enough that it will never come up again before winter. And winter time uh, they'll go to their homes. Uh, like I would uh, venture a, a wager that most of these uh, campers are not homeless. They're just camping out for the summer. Uh, they have places to go to. They could go where they were last summer or they could go to where they were during the winter. It's not like they're actually homeless with nowhere to go. So uh, I, I think something could be done, but uh, the council is just too cowardly to do, to do it. Okay, uh, Eric, uh, I, I suspect uh, you, you think uh, council is, is cowardly on a lot of things, but are they being cowardly on this one? <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm just reflecting on, I mean, we're, we're part of the problem, too. I can't think of anything in the last election, uh, politicians or, or people running for council, that they said, that they ran on and said that they would do. Nothing, nothing comes to mind. Certainly, I don't think the resolving the homeless problem came there. And uh, so we're now in a situation where you can get elected by not standing for anything. And then after you're elected, we expect you to do something. Well, you don't have to do anything because you didn't say you would. And we have to change that. And this next election coming up, I'm strongly suggesting to people that if these people don't have something specific that they're running to be on council for, then don't vote for them. Because what's the point of having them there? Now, having said that, uh, we have to deal with this problem downtown. We need somebody to take leadership of this, and, and this is what we're lacking uh, 
for any number of different reasons. We don't have strong leaders anywhere in Canada that I'm aware of. And uh, so how are we going to resolve some of these problems? The, uh, you know, I'm thinking, as an example, that area down there where, I mean, they've already had these cases in court in Victoria and Abbotsford. These people are entitled to a place to live. They can go in the parks and live there. The best you can do is, is get them out at 7 in the morning and don't let them back in at 7 at night. That's already been established by law. So there's no point beating around the bush with that. I would turn around and take that area down there and rezone it into a park. So now they're legally there. And you don't have to kick them out of there. And then you turn around and try to find facilities and, and washroom facilities, even if you have to hire contractors to look after it. The amount of money we're spending on extra bylaw enforcement offer, extra policing, ambulances, and everything, if we can eliminate that by 50%, we can afford to do anything with, uh, with that problem. Mm-hmm. But we need somebody to stand up and start doing something. Yeah, Peter, so, so how do we make this an election issue? And how do we hold the uh, the political leaders to account to actually do some of these things? Well, I think you know just by raising you know questions like uh, Erica's raised uh, uh, just right now, right? Asking very concrete things and uh, you know demanding that uh, uh, that if people are running for council, that they uh, lay out what, uh, what what they're going to stand for, right? And uh, you know, like we we have to. Look at uh, at concrete measures. As I said before, like this is a complex problem, and it's not just confined to to Prince George. It's it's all over the place, and uh, so we have to keep that in mind when we look at things, right? So we can um, say when elections come up and all this, uh, we can ask for what the concrete measures are, as well as the short term and long term measures uh, to, to sort out uh, problems like this. In this case, the homeless problem. Uh, which is an ongoing ongoing problem, but uh, it demands uh, concrete uh, solutions. And uh, uh, when people run in all this, they they should be prepared to uh, provide uh, or, or at least explain what their uh, concrete solutions are. Yeah, absolutely. And on that note, we will take uh, a short break and be right back. The government of B.C. has expanded its Launch Online Grant Program. The program will now provide up to $75,000 to help businesses build or expand an e-commerce site. Businesses in the hard-hit tourism sector and the service industry can now access the grant to build or improve their online booking systems. Small and medium-sized businesses can apply online and review eligibility criteria at launchonline.ca. The Launch Online Grant Program. Application deadline is September 30th or until funds have been fully subscribed so don't delay. If you attended a federal Indian day school, now is your time to make your claim. If you experience harm at your school, you may be eligible to receive a check for compensation. Remember, you need to make your claim before July 13, 2022. See if your school is on the list and get free legal help. Start at IndianDaySchools.com or call 1-844-539-3815. Claim what's yours. The Storytime Walk at the Central BC Railway and Forestry Museum is back for the summer. Experience regional history as it comes to life on eight acres featuring locomotives, rolling stock, and heritage structures. The Storytime Walk supports children's early literacy development and incorporates child-friendly facts about the museum's exhibits. To take the tour, download the GeoTourist app from geotourist.com, then search for Railway and Forestry Museum Storytime Walk. The Storytime Walk at the Central BC Railway and Forestry Museum. Back again for summer. 
A strong membership gives the BC Schizophrenia Society a louder voice on matters of importance to families who have been affected by schizophrenia, psychosis, and severe mental illness. For an annual individual membership of $15, you will have the opportunity to voice your opinions and vote at their annual general meeting on issues brought forward by the board of directors and vote for the following year's directors. To get your membership, click on Become a BCSS Member under Make a Difference at bcss.org. This is After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. And I'm your host, Bill Phillips. Uh, welcome back. We're going to switch up again, and we're going to move to federal politics for our last segment. Um, Herb, uh, there was, uh, there's was been lots of talk this week, given that it was Canada Day yesterday, about whether uh, you know we should postpone uh, the celebrations and all that kind of stuff. And Aaron O'Toole, the Conservative leader, he went on and... Uh, well, I think he used a bullhorn for his dog whistle politics. He proudly talked about preserving Canada Day as it is and uh, all that kind of stuff uh, rather than uh, uh, take a, a more uh, tactful thing. Like it should be, you know, defending Canada Day, I suppose. This is obviously a political move. Is it? Is it the right move for Aaron O'Toole to make? Yeah, it seems pretty baffling to me. He's uh, behind in the polls compared to the Liberals. And he's preaching to his base, so not really reaching out. And um, there's no path forward, I, I don't think, for the Conservatives if uh, there is an election held. But um, it's uh, yeah, it's sort of a strange, strange strategy. Yeah, uh, Art, do you think uh, do you think this uh, O'Toole's uh, stance on you know preserving the only one that's going to be fighting for Canada Day, that kind of stuff? Do you think that is going to help him uh, when it comes election time? No, it's going to hurt him. That man has no political instincts, or else they're totally reversed. They're, he's doing everything wrong, totally, from the time he took the leadership. on. He's not preaching to his base, as Herb said. He's preaching to nobody. He's preaching to phantoms. Uh, you know, at a time like this, when people should be uh, subduing celebrations and acknowledging uh, the harms done in the past... He's trying to, like, pretend it never happened. This is not the time to be doing something like that. He's doing the opposite of what he should be doing. Yeah. Eric, your thoughts? Uh, this uh, going to put uh, Aaron O'Toole in 24 Sussex Drive next election? Well, look what he's up against. I mean, you got, you got Trudeau got a, a haircut and a shave. <laughs> yeah, hey, there you go. How are you going to compete against that? He looks like the old Trudeau of old going after the women's vote or something. But he's, he's looking kind of sharp, and uh, so it looks like the game is on. No, O'Toole was yesterday's man before he was ever elected as leader of the party, and it hasn't changed. He's still yesterday's man. He doesn't fit into Canadian politics anymore. You know, the blue suit, pinstripes, uh, tie, and, uh, you know, the smile and the family and all the rest of that going out on pictures. Uh, there's more to politics these days than that, but uh, he's not the man. And and so I'm thinking that what's going to happen is we're going to end up with basically the same or maybe a slight majority liberal government this time around. He's not necessarily saying it's a good thing. It could be a very bad thing. But we're not equipped to have a, a proper election in this country because we've got nobody that's that interested in it. Yeah. Uh, Herb, uh your your thoughts on that, and I, I guess the other question we've asked before is, uh, uh, when are we going to have the election? 
I think it's uh, your uh, Peter's turn, actually. But or oh, Peter, did I? Yeah, I missed Peter last week too. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Peter. When are we going to have the election? Uh, well, it looks like the fall, right? Uh, and you can judge this by all the posturing that's going on, like Aaron O'Toole is posturing, but so is uh, Trudeau and Jagmeet Singh and, and so on, right? And, uh, I, uh, yeah, I, I'm concerned about what's coming up with this election, whether it's going to move anything ahead in the country in terms of um, what's really uh, facing us, right? Like, one of the things that I think... Should be rather than going going on about Canada Day and all this. Like, well, why doesn't Aaron O'Toole or other leaders bring up the fact that we need we need Canada needs a constitutional process whereby we um, have a situation where 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 people get to vote on a new constitution, like to deal with the whole question of nation to nation relations with Indigenous people, the issue of Quebec, and so on, right? No, that's a that's a big issue there. That, uh, but we've never had a process whereby Canadians have been able to actually participate in and and vote in uh, a constitution and a constituent assembly. So I think that's something that um, would be much more meat to it and would actually create a situation where you could bring about some sort of unity, right? Rather than the posturing that's going on from from all, all the political uh, leaders in in Parliament right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, Herb. Let's uh, we'll get to you finally here. Uh, um, constitutional wrangling. Uh, do you think that should be back on the table? Certainly, with uh, you know things we've been going on in uh, in Quebec, where they you know they use the, the notwithstanding clause to uh, to do some of the things they want to. Uh, Jason Kenney in Alberta is uh, looking at doing the same thing. Is that uh, is it time that we reopen those debates? I think uh, I think those debates are kind of ended. I think, um, for better or worse, I mean, uh, uh, Stephen Harper declared Quebec a nation uh, long ago. Um, so we've got to, you know, I think we've got to find um, some sort of uh, national uh, grounds for national unity, and um, we need, uh, but it's not not through um, not through constitutional not through constitutional talks. We've got to. Tr- try and find some common purpose and uh, coalesce around that. Right on. And as, as, as one who went through the, uh, the Charlottetown Accord and the Meech Lake Accord, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know that we need to go there again, but we probably need to do something. And on that end, on that note, uh, thank you for listening. I'm Bill Phillips, your host, and we'll be back again next week. After 9 is a daily presentation of CFIS-FM. After 9 is produced by Alan Wishart, Reg Fair, and Nathan Gita. Additional contributors include CBC News and the National Campus and Community Radio Association. For a rebroadcast of today's program, check out the podcast link at cfisfm.ca. To provide feedback or suggestions for the show, please email cfisfm at yahoo.ca. This is Community Radio 93.1 CFISFM Prince George, proudly supported by local businesses like Books and Company, 1685 3rd Avenue.